Welcome to the Geneva Center for Security Policy Podcast. Thank you for turning in. I'm your host, Dr. Paul Vallet, Associate Fellow with the GCSP's Global Fellowship Initiative. For the next 11 weeks, I'll be talking with subject matter experts to explain issues regarding peace, security, and international cooperation. Thank you for tuning in. This week marks the 10th anniversary of the beginning of the uprising in Syria against the regime of Bashar al-Assad in what was Syria's part of uh, what was then called the Arab Spring. The results of that spring have been very varied in countries across the Middle East, North Africa region. In Syria, Libya, and Yemen, a civil war emerged from these initial uprisings in 2011, which, despite the varying levels of foreign involvement, have not died down. In terms of casualties and displaced people, Syria is perhaps among these conflicts that are most etched itself on international conscience, especially when seen from Europe. But how is it that the war has been perceived on the outside? How can its story be told when it has been so dangerous for journalists to cover it? To get an idea, today we are talking with Kenneth R. Rosen, who's recently joined uh, to become a digital fellow for the GCSP's Global Fellowship Initiative. Kenneth R. Rosen is an award-winning foreign news correspondent who is reported especially from the Middle East uh, for numerous publications, among which the New York Times, New Yorker Magazine, The Atlantic, VQR, and Now Wired. His work has been translated into Arabic, Spanish, German, and Japanese, and he is the author of two books. He does us a great favor joining us from the region uh, in the Middle East. So welcome to the podcast, Ken. Well, thanks for having me. You're most welcome. My first question to you, of course, has to do with a bit of your work experience, but probably those of your fellows as well. Can you tell us uh, what has been the experience and the role of foreign correspondents in reporting about the war in Syria? Sure. The foreign press corps is given a lot of access to campaigns and, and military movements and a lot of the upper political parties who are tied into the region and also into these conflicts writ large. If I can just go back a little bit in history, um, you know, the First World War and the Second World War, foreign correspondents on both sides were granted unprecedented access. I mean, you had AP and Reuters correspondents who were embedded with German troops, and there was a lot of transparency on either side there. And I like to mention that only because while we do have access to, say, the SDF, the Syrian Democratic Forces in Syria, or the Peshmerga in uh, northern Iraq, where I am calling you from today, um, it's just not the same as it was many years ago. Even as even as recent as the um, invasion of Iraq with U.S. forces, um, a lot of American media were able to embed with the forces and see up front, up close, um, the multiple sides of, of the conflict. But now it's a little bit more restrained. There's there's more uh, vetting going on between who's allowed in to report on different campaigns or different situations, such as the in, uh, internally displaced people's camps uh, within northeastern Syria. Um, you certainly can't report from uh, regime-controlled areas, and it's very difficult to report from Turkish-backed opposition-controlled areas. There was a recent report in the New York Times when a correspondent and several other agencies were granted access to the Turkish areas, but generally speaking, it's very difficult. And, and when you are granted access, you're um, followed by a minder and, and, and taken only to areas that are of interest to government agenda. So it's a lot of narratives are coming out of the region, and, and there are a lot of journalists who are doing really great work, and it's important work. 
Um, but it's very limited given the situation and the, and the types of parties who are involved with the conflict. You have Russia, you have Iran, you have Northern Iraq, you have the uh, uh, Autonomous Administration in Northeastern Syria, you have the regime controlled areas of the government of Syria in the West, and then of course, course Turkish up in the Turkish forces up in the north. So there's so many different players nowadays that it makes it very difficult to really garner a full perspective. And then lastly, I just want to note that while we are granted access to as much as we can, there are so many news outlets and media outlets and blogs and podcasts and uh, radio stations that are trying to get access to these areas that it sometimes makes it difficult to uh, distinguish yourself from maybe the, the chaff, right? To be able to say that you are part of an organization that is able to disseminate the information and stories about these people more widely than say a smaller outlet would. So there are discerning factors among parties who are allowing people and journalists into these regions to cover the um, much needed ongoing conflict. Oh, yes. And, and, and of course, uh, uh, journalists have also been uh, among the casualties uh, in, the, in the past few years in, 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 in terms of uh, doing this really difficult job. But thank you for giving us a, an insight on that. And so precisely what I was going to ask you next is, uh, how is the uh, Syrian conflict being perceived by the outside audiences? Uh, this may have changed um, a little bit over time. And um, is reporting on it, you feel, of still providing some help towards conflict resolution? Or I don't believe there to be a real resolution in sight for the country, broadly speaking. So I'm not sure what the reporting is doing yeah. as far as helping that narrative forward. Obviously, foreign interests have their own objectives and ideas of how the conflict ends. Um, but as reporters, we're tasked with maintaining those updates in the public eye and, and continuing to file dispatches that sort of help people understand the situation as it unravels. But mostly American audiences, which is who I write for, aren't receptive to the idea of the Syria conflict anymore about reading about it or hearing about American involvement there in the Northeast specifically, in large part because they're sort of inundated with these forever wars and tired of hearing about American casualties, tired about hearing about American investment overseas in, in something that seems like a dead end. So it's really tough to come up with stories that I think will engage a readership that has become over time exhausted with these stories of more troops in a region when they don't understand the conflict and the nuances or, or fewer troops in a region, but more development projects in something that seems like a lost cause. So it's, it's tough from a writer and a journalist perspective to keep the interest of a reader who has been for the past 10 years reading about a conflict that doesn't seem to end. And I think that's true of, of most wars, just because there aren't really a clear cut black and white front line or, or objective. ISIS was maybe a, it was something different insofar as we understood who the enemy was, we could see them be diminished over time and understand a victory was in sight based on the reach of their caliphate. But ever since then, the, the government forces in Syria, the regime versus Russia versus Iran versus America versus Turkey versus Iran, you know, all these different parties and factions make it very convoluted and very difficult to follow. So I think coming up with stories that are interesting are the most important things when, it, in, when considering what to write about from the region as a, as a, as a journalist, as a storyteller. And those stories aren't easy to come by because they do maintain these continually difficult and, and diluted and, and, and convoluted political parties and, and aspects and factions and, and uh, people who are switching sides left and right. We, you know, we saw America withdraw very quickly and then come back into the fold. So it's, uh, it's, it's tiresome for, for a casual reader. But I have hope that if journalists continue to make their way out there and continue to publish stories on the region and, and, and doing the best they can to get a full-bodied picture of what's happening, then uh, one day... 
hopefully soon the, the general public will see the benefit of, of maintaining our footprint and interest in the region. Indeed, as, as you point out, it, it sometimes uh, seems hard to uh, believe that this conflict uh, ha- has been going on for, for 10 years. And uh, as a small aside, it, it reminds me of a history project that I followed some, some time ago. We were introduced to uh, at the GCSP, where some historians were, were trying to draw some, some analogies between uh, current conflicts and, and, and past ones. And uh, the, the Syrian conflict, uh, and this is, you know, uh, I think uh, three or four years ago already, but it attracted the the attentions of uh, specialists uh, who uh, compared it to the Thirty Years' War. So uh, uh, that too in European history is already uh, uh, something that is, uh, of course, extremely convoluted and complicated for a uh, uh, readership to uh, follow. So indeed, what you're saying about the the difficulty of reporting on this uh, particular conflict, the more it drags on as well, too, the more delicate it is to indeed keep uh, the readership's attention on this. Right. And I think, you know, at the outset of a conflict, you have a very clear vision of what's the, what the problem is, right? They, civil, the civilized population wanted to uh, rise up against a uh, more or less authoritarian rule and wanted to replace him. Very simple, clear cut. In, in my view. And then over the years, you know, think, uh, different parties got involved. Operation Peace Spring brought Turkey in and then and then affected our uh, the U.S. partner in northeastern Syria. And it just gets more and more complicated as the years go on. So I think in the initial stages, it's easy to say to easy to support an effort that seems clear cut with a certain objective. But as that time goes on, things get more and more complex and more and more complicated. And now it's just a geopolitical nightmare. And and indeed, of course, uh, here in Geneva, we were also at some stages, uh, the uh, the setting for uh, some of the attempts at, at conflict resolution. And, and over the years, we saw not only, of course, the parties involved, but the narratives stemming from these parties uh, become even more and more complicated to resolve in that respect. Right. And Resolution 2254, which you're referring to in Geneva, is probably on hold for the next several months, at least until the Syrian elections. Um, You know, we have a changeover in the U.S. administration, and it isn't necessarily a priority for uh, the Biden administration to focus on Syria um, and the Middle East, though there have been uh, people pl- put in place in the administration who have uh, a keen interest in Syria and Iraq and, and have been working in the region for a while. So uh, while things are certainly ongoing, um, we're not really certain we'll see any movement here toward a, a, a finite resolution for, for many more months. On uh, To return, of course, to, to the issue of the, the, the narrative construction, uh, and, and you did touch on that in the, your first answers uh, as well, too, but I was very interested in uh, hearing uh, whether, uh, from the point of view of uh, correspondence, like yourself was a, a substantial experience of the of the area. Whether you've also put uh, the uh, time together to, to think about whether you've learned any uh, lessons uh, in terms of uh, what it's like to cover a conflict such as this, uh, and, and how does that you know compare to the experience of uh, uh, reporting that we've known in in, in other uh, wars in, in in recent times? Uh, sometimes some of these conflicts that constituted a little bit. Uh, landmarks in terms of a war reporting. We, we all hear about Vietnam being the first televised war and, 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 and the first Gulf War of 1991, also an anniversary year, which was uh, one of the uh, first permanent uh, news broadcast, cable news broadcast, uh, covered wars. So uh, what do you think about this one? <laughs> I suppose you could say the Arab Spring was prefaced on a rise in social media use. So I would say that perhaps these conflicts are really social media conflicts. Um, 
And that is to say that a lot of the information being disseminated by some of the leaders of the different militias and the different parties involved is, is heavily through social media. Second, I would also note that a lot of the people that I've worked with and seen out in the field as far as reporters and journalists go are, are genuinely freelance journalists, independent journalists who are filing stories to magazines and newspapers and, and web outlets who aren't anything more than a contractor. So there's really this network of freelancers and independent writers and journalists who are doing all this hard work on their own and, and hustling without the necessary backing and support of an organization, as you would see with someone who was a bureau chief for a, a newspaper or a magazine here full time. And I think that's really been a revelation to me to know that there are so many young people who are doing all this really great work and, and putting the time and effort and, and sacrifice into both their personal and professional lives in order to bring these stories to fore. Um, and that's that's really opened my eyes because I never really understood how the mechanics of something like that worked until more recently when I spent a lot of time on the ground. And I can't really compare to other conflicts because I haven't covered them myself, <laughs> certainly not the Vietnam War. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, it seems to me like the, most of the good, really good reporting I've seen is, is not only just the, the people who are bureau chiefs or staff reporters or staff writers, but very young postgraduates who are fronting the bill themselves to get out here and, and ask the hard questions and do the necessary work to, to bring these stories out. And, and then lastly, I just want to note that I think the things that I've learned over the last, I guess, almost five years of covering the region has been uh, that I know nothing. I know absolutely nothing. Every time I land, something new is different, or I, I didn't learn um, specifically about one party enough to come back into the situation with uh, a better understanding of it than when I left before. Everything's always changing. Everything's very complex. So I, I try to do my best to come in as blind as possible. So I'm open and receptive to new ideas and, and new people and, and new developments in the region, which also is, is sort of part of my, my comfort plan is as long as I maintain a personal level of comfort and, and take care of myself physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, um, and, and keeping a good physical space, then I end up doing better work rather than uh, worrying too much about who I'm with or who I'm around. And I guess like more on a fundamental level, that just means that, you know, I, I travel with my own medicine. I travel with extra recorders, extra batteries. I, I make sure that nothing can go wrong and lead me down a path of worry or, or estrangement and that I can just focus on the work. And that's something that I didn't necessarily do in the beginning, but now I've, I've come with my own little personal kit, my own, my own little personal happy kit to make sure that uh, I can come out and focus on the work and not worry too much about my health or, or the health of my, my fixers or translators who I oftentimes supply with hand sanitizer or, you know, Advil or Tylenol or um, a little snack bar that I carry with me, uh, which is, which is, you know, helps. It helps. All these little things help these little, these little precious gems of, of comfort. Well, you know, uh, this is a quite, quite fascinating to, to listen to you uh, also mentioning the, the fact that of course, so many very uh, young uh, uh, people are improvising themselves uh, as uh, uh, as freelance uh, correspondents, and, and in some ways, it may provide them with, uh, I think, a, a, a lot more flexibility in terms of the, the the use of the kinds of technologies that they need to uh, uh, be able to uh, put their reporting across too. But uh, as you're saying, you know, there's. Uh, also, of course, uh, some 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 risks in in that autonomy, and that you know you you are uh, left on on your own and, and dependent on uh, uh, issues. And uh, health wise, I, I guess that can be, uh, of course, uh, quite tragic. I think was the case uh, of uh, Anthony Shahid for the New York Times. Who, uh, right, right. That was uh, that was many years ago, and I think it was uh, he suffered from an asthma attack. Um, mm -hmm. 
based on the, he was riding a horse at the time over the border with Syria and uh, tragic, absolutely tragic. Uh, to the point about the, the the youth and the and the sort of independent contractors and freelance journalists who are working in the region, it, it is extra difficult for them though, because they also don't have the necessary credentials when be, when presenting to officials to get the proper permissions to go to a certain area or to visit with someone um, high ranking or even enter a internally displaced persons camp. And I and there have been efforts in recent years to, to form networks and agencies who can vouch for the legitimacy of these young correspondents who aren't necessarily tied to a magazine or a uh, publication. And, I, and I've seen that becoming more and more important to the work of freelancers, freelancers who need press cards, freelancers who need letter, letters of accreditation. There's good work being done with the Frontline Freelance Register. There's um, another organization that I'm blanking on right now at the moment, but they're pulling together um, a culture of safety is another organization. And they're pulling together a lot of resources that are helping people operate in these, in these uh, conflict zones. And, and I think that the more support that young journalists and independent freelancers can get, I think the, the better reporting we'll see and the more clear-eyed, sober pictures we see coming out of it. I was also uh, thinking for some, you know, considering, you know, the, just the, the incredible effort that uh, you and, and, and these younger colleagues are uh, going through to uh, indeed keep this narrative in the, in, in the public eye and, and in the public conscience. And well, given the fact that we're also, of course, living in, in a, uh, in a world also of uh, shifting technologies and the way the way of filing stories is of course uh, uh, becoming much more dependent, as you're saying, you know, a little bit of a social media coverage type. Um, and I was wondering whether, you know, in, in your experience, whether the uh, the day to day reporting of uh, of the conflicts uh, or of others is is that uh, sort of a considered to have more potential impact on, on audiences if you're filing more and more stories and, and, and doing it in, in short, uh, regular, uh, almost daily clips, or would, you know, sort of longer piece reporting, uh, such as, you know, uh, uh, materials that you might write for, for a long article or, or for one of your books, uh, do, you, do you feel that has more of an, an impact in, in terms of uh, raising public comprehension of uh, what you're talking about? I think long-form magazine articles are, are key to help people understanding these very complex situations, only because of the breadth and latitude given to the writers uh, to spell out all the different uh, elements of, of an ongoing conflict. Uh, you know, you get 10,000, 15,000, 30,000 words to be able to explain um, a situation or hyper-focus on one aspect of something. It gives people a fuller-bodied understanding of the different components. I think daily news has, of course, a, a, an inherent value and, and it informs these longer pieces, no doubt. I'm wondering also if those daily pieces lend to this sort of exasperation of the general readership. Um, as far as books go, I wonder if those aren't necessarily being sought out unless someone is already keen or interested in the, in the subject matter itself. Um, I know myself personally, I, I primarily write magazine articles now, and those are for me, a better way to understand a subject because I have more room to delve into a subject and not have to worry about explaining things very briefly and then glossing over other aspects or, or, or 
cantons or militia groups or their structure and, and how they play into the whole thing. But I'm not really sure about general readership. I mean, I, you know, I publish things often and send them out into the world and, and never hear back from anyone. So if anyone, you know, is reading and, and wants to send me a note, let me know if, if it's if it's working or if they prefer something shorter. I'd, I'd appreciate it, of course, to know um, what people, what their reading habits are these days. I've heard both, both lines of thought. Short is better. Long is better. Uh, I guess it's, it's also a personal preference. Yeah, well, I, I think, you know, speaking for a personal experience in uh, my own uh, research, uh, certainly I've found, you know, over the over the past years, uh, reading about current issues and long form articles and in, 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 in some magazines are often uh, indeed, you know, sources of incredible insight uh, uh, in this matter. So that, that's perhaps the, the historian in me speaking in, uh, in this matter, but I, I certainly consider them to be uh, quite informative and, uh, and often thought provoking on, on, on this matter. I think some of the, some of the best books and the, and the most vivid reporting are the longer pieces and they receive a high level of attention in part because they're stories and people mm-hmm. can relate to storytelling and the better the storytelling, the more compelling it is, um, the more likely it is to engage in a reader who might not otherwise be interested in Syria, who might other, not otherwise be interested in uh, the Kurdish diaspora or how they're faring in the autonomous administration of northeastern Syria. All these things play a part in, in how we develop a story and an idea to engage someone who might not otherwise wish to be engaged with it. And I think as someone who tries to write those stories, I, I struggle a lot to uh, divorce myself from what I know to be able to present it in a way that is both engaging and informative. But uh, as, as, as you said, you know, if historians are reading it and taking from it, uh, you know, good tidbits and information that they hadn't thought of, then all the better, you know, we're, we're hitting two, uh, two birds with a single stone. Well, uh, I think uh, that's a, a sort of a wonderful note to end on that. And, and, and let's hope that indeed, you know, uh, your work and, and, and those of others is, is really going to uh, uh, keep this story in the, in the limelight because uh, uh, sadly, as you pointed out, you know we're we're, we're so far from a from a conflict resolution in in, in these issues. Thank you very much for uh, joining us uh, today to uh, mark a little bit of this uh, anniversary, Ken. So that's uh, all we're going to have for today's episode. Please listen to us again next week to hear about the latest insights on international peace and security. Don't forget, you can subscribe to us on Anchor FM, Apple iTunes, or follow us on Spotify and on SoundCloud. I'm Paul Vallée with the Geneva Center for Security Policy. Until next time, bye for now.